Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hello, Glenn. Happy spring. Uh, you were saying before we started that it's uh, quite warm up, <laughs> up in the, the great white north. Well, yeah, for April, uh, we don't usually hit 80 degrees, you know, roughly, what was that, uh, 20, 28, 29 Celsius uh, this early. I mean, normally we have ice still on the lake, still. right, you know, <laughs> it, it, uh, around April. I saw people out on the lake. I have never seen people out on the lake until probably at least 1st of May, and people were already out in boats so, and fishing Is- because we don't even have our fishing opener until later, so – you know, weeks from now. So it, it really is bizarre. Uh, Carrie Hall, you know, friend of the show yeah. and uh, right. So Carrie actually took her family camping. I don't know anyone who's gone camping in March in Minnesota. It's, it's unheard of. Uh, so yeah, it's unseasonably warm uh, right now. Does that mean, does that make for extra big mosquitoes in the, in the height of summer or is that? Dude, that's, uh, that's all I'm thinking about. I, I went out tonight and I, w- I went down to the, there's a little lake nearby where I live and I started looking to see for, in the mosquito larvae because I'm always obsessed about the mosquito season. And so I'm actually praying for a little bit of a, like a flash freeze coming up in a few weeks to kill them off. But yeah, I'm worried that we'll have mosquitoes next month that'll be the size Ooh. of, you know, my thumb. <laughs> Oh boy, let's let's move into a couple of the topics here to to start the show. Uh, the first is uh, our new patrons. Uh, so big list to, uh, today, uh, just because we've got a flood of people coming in the past uh, month or so. Uh, so big thanks to Greg, to Gloria, Kathleen, Jan, uh, Nicholas, and to Mad Ripper. Uh, thank you guys all so much for uh, contributing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. All right, so I have to interject. Did you say Mad Ripper? All one word, yes. Uh, oh, I'm, oh, oh, so it could be Mod Ripper. Uh, well, the, the R is capitalized, so that would be an interesting way to read that. But um, oh, Okay. But, so I, I was, I was, that's why I stuck with, with Mad Ripper. But, um, okay. but you know, I, I, sure, sure. Uh, people get to sign up however they want to on patreon.com and, and, but we'll, we'll still throw out, uh, you know, big thanks to them for, uh, sending their, their dollar or two our way. And, uh, in fact, not just a dollar or two our way, there are some few people now that are contributing with, with other currencies. We've got some Canadian dollars, some, some pounds coming in. Uh, so I was like, we're getting loonies. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're taking them all right. Loonies and toonies. <laughs> Awesome. No, that's great. I, I, big ups to our, our fan base, and we really do appreciate it so much. And, and thank you all for your donations. Not only do you keep the lights on, you keep us motivated, you yeah. help us update our equipment. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And um, Eric, why don't you tell our fans about a couple of things that we're actually working on? We've got now the uh, the figs and uh, some video stuff. You want to yep. talk about that? So. First, we'll talk about the FIGS. So that's uh, Fingerprint Interest Group. And uh, so this is a project that started, oh, was it about, what, 15 years ago, 18 years ago, something like that now, Glenn? Charles with, Parker. With Charles Parker. Yep. Uh, down From in, Austin, Texas. In, in Texas, yep, Central Texas. He started over just you know, sending out emails of you know, people sign up if they're interested in just hearing about training events or articles or just interesting things and also sending out images of fingerprints people would send him in interesting comparisons and he'd send that out to the group 
So the images are all archived on the CLPEX.com uh, site. Uh, after he passed, uh, his colleague uh, Sandy Siegel took over and continued on sending out those emails for, for many years as well. Uh, about a year ago or so now, she had to uh, to discontinue uh, her involvement in it, uh, you know, reached out to see if, you know, who might be interested in taking that on and continuing that project going. Uh, so we stepped up and mainly, you know, our friend of the show, Becca, uh, Rebecca Coutant, who uh, is really kind of spearheading this for us. And so while we're, we're hosting the kind of the software of it, uh, you know, she's putting together the content and getting that out. Uh, so if you are interested in receiving uh, this, this newsletter, essentially, uh, you can go to doubleloopodcast.com and look for FIGS, Fingerprint Interest Group, and uh, sign up. And you'll get every couple weeks, every month or so, uh, a, an email newsletter to, uh, you know, just about stuff that's going on uh, in the field, links to some of our newest uh, episodes, links to training that's being provided, you know, just whatever um, people have. And if you have something you want to send out to a group of fingerprint examiners, you know, sign up and then the information will also be there on how to contact Becca to get that information out. Yeah, l let me just share a couple of examples. I mean, sometimes uh, we'll get emails from listeners or e even with the FIG group, they'd say something like, our agency is thinking about buying a new humidity chamber. Uh, what are your recommendations? Or we're looking at updating our superglue fuming cabinet. What uh, what have you guys found to be useful? We don't we don't have any sponsors that we deal with, you know, uh, in the vendor realm right there. So, you know, we we basically let listeners ex share their experiences, and through Figs, they've been able to do that. So sometimes there are these surveys or polls. Sometimes listeners want to know what sort of challenges are coming up in court, so they will send an email through the Figs. And then there'll be a quick poll, and then the results will be shared with the other FIG members. So, again, it's a, it's a really cool tool to connect with the worldwide latent print community. So uh, we're, we're really excited to, to, to have that going now. Uh, the first e you know, email newsletter went out uh, oh, a couple months ago now, and, and um, you know, they'll just keep coming and, you know, as soon as there's enough content to, to send out to the group. Right. And, and and if you do sign up for it, you don't see anything, check your yes. – sometimes check your spam or junk email folder because it's being sent through MailChimp, which is this automated sort of server. Sometimes it can be detected as spam or junk mail. So once you alert your uh, receiving uh, software, you know Outlook or whatever, and let let it know that this is not, uh, f you know, from an, a dis disavowed or unapproved sender, uh, then you know should be fine after that. All right. So the next thing, uh, exciting thing that's that's you know we're we're doing, we're going back to doing some more videos. Uh, so a few years ago, Glenn and I put together a few videos. Uh, for patrons, and you can still find them on Patreon.com. You have to go, go if you're a patron. You have to actually go to the Patreon website and scroll through all of the um, all the content that's there, uh, just like you would do to find to listen to old episodes. Do that to find the links to these uh, videos, and it's me and Glenn comparing fingerprints and talking through what we're seeing while we're doing that. So we've gotten back into that. I just finished editing together the video for. Uh, the most recent one, <laughs> it's funny. We we use like a, was it Zoom or what do we use to to record? Uh, Glenn, go to meeting. Go to meeting. That's right. And uh, so Glenn did record did the recording at his end. Sent me over the files, 
to start editing. And I said, what, what do we use? What we do like 20 minutes or something on, on that first one. And he said, dude, it was like an hour. <laughs> so, I think after a few edits, it was down to 45 minutes on just one comparison. But you know, we go really in depth as to what we're seeing and why we make certain conclusions, not just, you know, the final ID or exclusion, but you know, value, complexity, quality, those little micro decisions you make along the way. I, I find it fascinating to sit down with, with you or any other examiner yep. and basically see the same latent print through your eyes. And that's what I think the, the viewer gets to see. You know, you and I are just two examiners. There's nothing necessarily special about us. I'm sure we both make mistakes and we misinterpret things and we're human. We're just examiners, right? Yep. And so it's it's nice that other examiners and potentially trainees can watch his video and go, oh, okay, so even if I've got 20 years of experience, it's not like I'm going to always know. It's not like this is going to get necessarily easier or this, that this suddenly comes into focus and I always will be able to tell if it's minutia or not. I mean it's, it's nice for, I, I think, beginners in the field to see what it's like down the road that the, the interpretation difficulties don't go away. Absolutely. So especially this first one, I really enjoyed. Uh, so what we're going to do is post it for everyone to see, uh, at least at first, uh, this one that we just recorded. Uh, so look for it uh, over Twitter, um, on our website, in the the, the, the text notes for this episode. Um, Figs group. Facebook, exactly. Uh, Figs group. Oh, Figs, yes, exactly. Or the Figs group email, I thought. I thought you were old man mispronouncing Facebook there for a second. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Figs group as well. Yes. And, uh, you know, so t- t- take a look, you know, let us you know, know some feedback, what you think of, uh, of that video. And, you know, Glenn and I are excited to do more uh, and also to make this a, a you know, Patreon content where, you know, we're really appreciative and want to want to give something back to them for all the help that they provided us. And to that point, Eric, I thought I would actually read an email, too, that kind of ties into what we're just talking about. So we received an email from a listener. Uh, I won't say the agency, but I'll just give a shout out to Tiffany. Uh, Tiffany wrote us and said, hey, I just started teaching an intro to fingerprint class uh, at one of our local universities. Uh, It has online classes all over the U.S. I thought it would be fun to offer them extra credit for listening to three episodes of the Double Loop podcast. And have them write a summary of each episode. They are due at the end of March, so I'm excited to see how it goes and what they think as new students to the field and just kind of letting us know that we might get some more new listeners from these students. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. Uh, I like the idea of having these students get very interested potentially in fingerprints. And I, I think the main thing, this is what always hooked me when I was a student, listening to people who are passionate about a certain topic. That's the thing. You know, you and I are huge nerds when it comes to fingerprints, and we get very passionate and riled up over these topics. So if there are students that listen to it, that should tell you something about our field, that this field has lots of opportunities. It's a very fun field. It's wide open for research and opportunities, and you can really go very far in this field if you've got a little bit of drive and a motor that you know will, will keep you propelling forward. You know. Anyway, I, I thought that uh, I thought that was kind of cool that she was offering extra credit to listen to the Double Loop podcast. Thank you, Tiffany. We really appreciated that. Thank you, Tiffany. That's that's, that's great. It reminds me of the I think we told the story a couple months ago on the podcast of 
you know the the new trainee that uh, you know, joined us on the happy hour one night um, and had talked about you know listening to the show while he was you know working in retail applying to different forensic labs and you know getting excited about about fingerprints from just hearing us talk about it so that's and that happy hour is still going on on Wednesday nights it is it is uh, 5 p.m. Pacific 8 uh, Eastern yes uh, so um. Let's see. Let's do the anagram real quick because I okay. should have done that way earlier thinking about the order of things. But um, uh, hopefully it doesn't take too much too long to uh, to work through it. Uh, the the words here today are antiquary clauses. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so antiqua- antiquary yep. clauses. Uh, A-N-T-I-Q-U-A-R-Y and then clauses, C-L-A-U-S-E-S. Antiquary clauses. Okay, so let's see. Any other stuff, intro stuff before we move into the main topic? No, I'm good. Okay, I think that's everything. Speaking of email, there was a another email I got here recently where you know the writer was was asking about an erroneous exclusion, and I thought, well, okay, I mean, this is a topic we've covered a couple times, if you will. <laughs> Uh, but the the kind of the, the twist of the email was, you know, we had an erroneous exclusion um, in our unit recently, and we we're they were wondering like what what advice uh, could you offer about the next time that someone in the unit, whether it's the person who made the error or some just someone else in the unit, has to go in to testify. Uh, right. You know what 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 do you have to say differently, or what what should you say if this topic comes up? Basically, just how do you handle court testimony if they start asking about specific errors that might have occurred in your agency? And I thought, you know what? Well, so I answered the email specifically to that person, but I thought, yeah, I think this is a you know beyond just that one situation. I think this you know an interesting topic to consider as as this is this is a universal concern, right? There's there's not a single sure. lab that hasn't faced you know some type of error you know, in the, the work that they do. So kind of exploring, talking through, I mean, we've each made errors in actual casework before, uh, and had those errors discovered through a quality assurance program. So, you know, how do you talk about all of that in court? Yep. I, I think that's a great topic and it'd be cool to take, I think both the erroneous ID and the erroneous exclusion as well perspective. And I can share a little bit, uh, again, like you said, having made some errors and also experienced in our laboratory some errors. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I think this will be helpful for students to hear. And, uh, oh, by the way, I solved your, your answer. Okay. <laughs> I figured it wouldn't take really too long. The the, the cue kind of might give it away where to start. So, <laughs> good job on that, Glenn. Um, all right. So uh, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with with uh, ex- erroneous exclusion or erroneous ID? Where, where, where do you think well, the best place to start? Yeah, is? why don't we start with erroneous exclusion since okay. I think that is an experience that every examiner has had, right? That's one that um, at some point, it, it, if you haven't yet, you're going to have. Right. So uh, let me start uh, like this, and and um, I may just start asking you different questions, Glenn, and and oh, kind of questions, you know, jump off from there. But um, so in just you know the the voir dire portion of testimony, when they're just asking you about you, um, if if the subject of errors just 
isn't doesn't come up naturally as a question from either the prosecutor or the defense attorney. Do you mention that you've made an error in casework? No and no, uh, meaning that it's never come up. They have never really? actually been asked about errors during voir dire. It's never happened. Uh, so I've never had an opportunity and I've never brought it up myself uh, just because, again, during voir dire and especially in the beginning stages of testimony, I just wait for the question and answer the question I'm asked. They're telling – they have a narrative. They're telling the story. I have been asked about it but not uh, during voir dire but rather during cross-examination. Okay, during cross-examination. So when it comes – it has come up before in court but just not – not in that initial, uh, what's it called, uh, qualification stage. Um, Correct. Uh, and, but then, so and I, I would I would make the same point of first off, if if this is something that's happened to you or someone else in your unit, first off, don't don't just bring it up out of the blue, right? But if asked about it, you know, be ready to discuss, you know, some of the other things we're going to talk about throughout the episode. To be fair, I, this is so rare, but I, I do want to just acknowledge that we're aware of this there are a handful of agencies at least in the united states that during disclosure uh, so during their discovery basically they actually do disclose any errors that the examiners made so quality assurance things so mm-hmm. during just normal discovery they will actually attach all that on so it, it it's actually released to the attorney right up front before there's any actual trial or testimony that's pretty rare uh, unless it's specifically requested by defense, then of course, proficiency testing or you know, corrective actions might be released. But there are a few agencies that proactively provide that information right up front. And and I would even say that, that attorneys should regularly be asking about this, right? Agreed. I, Eric, you know, I meet with attorneys daily. I mean, I, I talk to attorneys daily because they're my primary clients. Right. It's incredible how few have that in any of their cross-examination questions. Sometimes they run you know, questions through, through me or well, what do you think about this or I'm going to ask this. You'd be surprised how few actually have that. I mean, less than – easily, less than 5%. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I, I, it, it really is actually and not just errors but corrective actions or any – they don't think to ask those questions. It's, it's the number one thing we fear. And yet it's one of the few things that they think to actually ask about. And I would say I would encourage, you know, attorneys to ask these questions because I, I, I think it's it's important that, you know, everything be open and discussed. And I I, I don't think it's a it would it's a terribly challenging thing to cover. We we have so many good answers now to in how to discuss not just errors, but just the entire quality assurance program that exists around a a, a crime lab. Yeah, and you know, I, I, why don't we why don't we try this? You ask me a few questions. How about I ask you a few questions? Sure, sure. All right. So imagine you're on the stand, and you're uh, you've gone through your direct. You're presenting an identification that happens to be to the defendant in the case. Now we're on cross examination. So pretend I'm the defense attorney. I. I think people really fear these questions, but here's how they're going to come at you. And Eric, you know, we didn't rehearse this at all, no. so you know, <laughs> let's let's just go through this. Sure, uh, uh, Mr. Ray, you mentioned that uh, you take uh, at least one proficiency test per year through your agency. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And uh, someone knows the answer for these tests, and they checked your answers effectively to see if you get them right or wrong. 
Uh, correct. The these tests are designed to where the ground truth is known. So the people creating both the latent prints and the known prints, you know which finger or which part of the palm of which person left each impression. So there is absolutely a, a correct answer for these tests. And you have have you ever made an error on one of these tests? Uh, no, I have not. You've never made an error on a single proficiency test? That is correct. And has anyone else in your laboratory, such as the verifier in this in this case, do you know if they've ever made an error on one of those proficiency tests? Um, I'm not aware of the results of their proficiency tests, um, of the person who was the verifier in this particular case. Um, however, I am aware that uh, another examiner in my lab uh, has made an error on uh, one of these proficiency tests in the past. And have you ever made an error, say, in casework where ground truth isn't known, but an error was potentially detected? Yes, I have. I made what's called an erroneous exclusion error. And that is when I said that these two prints did not belong to each other. They're made by different people. Uh, and the verifier went to check that and found similarities that would show that they actually do come from the same person. Yeah, that was discovered, went through our entire quality assurance program, and uh, the error was presented back to me on further review. You know, I made the correction to my notes, and uh, the final result released r released in the report was the, the correct identification result uh, in that case. I, I see. And is it possible then that there are other errors that you've made in casework that were not detected by your verifier? That is possible. There's a research that is uh, available that points that not all errors will be detected in the verification f uh, phase. However, I should point yep. out, though, that... Uh, this is where it, the attorney cuts you off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that in this particular case, I reached an identification conclusion. Um, yeah, and this, is where, this is where the attorney would have cut you off. Absolutely cut me off. And th sure. that's what the, the next point to go through. I was trying to figure out exactly where to, to put this, right? And I probably should have put it a little bit earlier uh, before giving like the, the yes-no answer. Um, or, so or not at all because it wasn't the question that was asked. Who, who cares? I mean th this is the defense attorney's opportunity that's true. to look at the other side of it. And I mean, uh, ultimately my next question here would be – so you're not saying you're perfect, even though you've you have said that you have over 15 years of experience. You are a certified examiner, and you discussed your certification and what it took to do that. You were not immune to errors. You have made errors before in the past. That is correct. And so, it is possible then that you could have made an error in this case. It is possible. And and that right there, I, I didn't expect you to answer that. Sorry, okay. um, uh, but uh, you did. I, I was surprised to hear you say that. Uh, but that's the uh, that's the beauty of it. All they're looking for is I've made a mistake before. It's possible in this case, and then you go into. But here's why I don't think I did. And, and well, part of that is uh, it's important to have a a a good prosecutor uh, that would that'll read that will kind of help fix things with a redirect. <sighs> I, I, I kind of on the fence a bit with leaving too much of it, uh, you know, just with short answers as, you know, so I don't want to potentially mislead the court, right? You know, so, some of the things I already, some of the answers I already gave feel a little uncomfortable as, as potentially misleading. I, I, I see your point because he's asking you about erroneous exclusions. You don't want the juror confused that it's a different kind of error. 
it's a different error than than basically the conclusion in this case, right? Right, and and with a different error rate and different conditions and all sorts of different uh, differences, which which we'll get into here uh, tonight. True, I, I I take your point. I I think from the defense attorney's perspective, they just want you to admit that you're not perfect. You made errors before. Sure, and yep. you know what? Yes, of course it's possible that an error occurred in this case. I mean, and so what? <laughs> I mean, what's what's wrong with saying that that is it's possible? Of course, it's possible. It feels like there's this like, uh, you know, you can't you can't give them that. Well, sure, give them that. That's that's nothing. It, it's who cares? Yes, it's possible. Just I I, I, it. I I agree hundred percent. I mean, I've given that answer many times. I used to do this thing with my students at college where I'd run through. I would actually run through the basically. Don't, ha, haven't made mistakes before and I didn't make one in this case answer kind of a zero error rate approach and I'm telling you that the whenever I would double down on that I've lost credibility in their eyes but whenever I admitted that no I've made mistakes before then and when I've made mistakes before but here's why you have a quality assurance program and most importantly when you do detect those errors not that you're going to detect all of them but when you do detect them you then do something about them. That's the the critical aspect of quality assurance is not so much about just finding errors, but that you have a procedure in place to correct, to readjust, uh, to realign the ship, and to yep. try to prevent or reduce it from happening again in the future. And I think that that's a really critical thing to bring up. But the idea that an error has happened. My, once I admitted to students that, no, no, er, I made errors before. I don't think I made one in this case, but here's why. Um, it's possible, theoretically it's possible, but I don't think I did, and here are the things that I, I think you should consider if, if I did make one or not. They found that to be a more credible answer, and that's that was the word that they kept saying. It just You sound more credible when you say it that way. I remember one student, I mean, this I don't know if she meant anything by it, but she basically said, you know, you're not Jesus, and I don't expect <laughs> you to be. I went, well, yes, I know that, and thank you for not expecting that. But her point was well taken, that we don't expect anyone and anybody, any human to be perfect. And when you begin to imply that you are, you're going to lose credibility. I mean, you don't even have to have like the greatest prosecutor. All they really have to do on, on uh, redirect is ask you. Do you think you made a mistake in this case? Well, you know, no, I, I don't think I did. And why is that? And then phew, you have just free reign to kind of, you know, explain all the different reasons, you know, why you don't think an error occurred in this particular case. And, and that's, that's what I'm going to keep you know, coming back to is that, you know, one of the, one of the things to do when discussing errors that have occurred in your lab or the errors that you've made in the past um, is to you know, point out the differences between the conditions that led to those errors and the conditions in this case. Uh, and there's likely there's going to be many, many differences between the two. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. In fact, I want to cycle back to that in just a second. Do you think that the reasons that you're sure there's not an error will differ between an erroneous exclusion and an erroneous ID, though? Oh, Although, to be fair... Yeah. You're probably not testifying if you've excluded the individual, and then that's exactly, and that that's the that's kind of the condition I'm in right now is that the error that I made before, the error error that happened in the lab before, was an erroneous exclusion, and the 
conclusion that I'm testifying to presently uh, is an ID, or that's really the probative conclusion that I'm testifying to today. Sure. And I think that's the big thing is that it's it's harder with the erroneous exclusions as we've had, you know, talked about in previous episodes with Heidi and Christoph. You know, it's it's harder to know for sure that you've looked in all the right areas. And even if you did look in the right areas, there's still the possibility that you might have missed it. It's different with an ID when you think you have found it, right? I mean, so the things that lead to an erroneous exclusion are different decision criteria that are different for an erroneous exclusion. So I, I totally take your point of why these are so different because they really are very different decision models. And um, I want to explore that a little bit more, but first, I, I think you know it's it's important just in a more generic sense to talk not really about the differences between the error that occurred before and this current conclusion, but just because so, sometimes hey, you might be in a situation where it's not a different condition. You are testifying to an exclusion, or someone in your lab made a bad ID, and and this is an ID, so there there aren't as many differences to talk about. So, I mean, there's still things to bring up, right? There's first making sure there that, I mean, like I said, we'll, we'll go into more of the, the differences part, different types of errors, different types of conclusions, uh, different frequencies of errors. But just overall, you ha your lab has a quality assurance program and a quality assurance department for a reason, right? It's not because we never expect an error. It, we have all this because we do expect errors to occur and we want to have the the mechanisms in place to address them and catch them and fix them. I mean, that's, that is the expectation is that errors will occur. This, this idea that they should never occur is, is insane because well, I mean, why even bother having a quality assurance department? And I mean, every lab is slightly different, but you know, know all the things that your quality assurance department does to you know, mitigate the risk of error. And I mean, there's, probably half a dozen things that you can explain in some detail in court between, you know, policies, tech verification, right? The tech review, admin review, the proficiency testing, yada, yada, yada. Like there's lots and lots of stuff that your lab does to, um, to try to reduce the risk of error, catch errors that do occur, all that stuff. And it's really important to talk about all that and know how to describe all of these different processes. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a great point. That, that that is the whole, as you say, purpose of quality assurance is that errors are expected, and any laboratory worth its salt not only expects errors but has these mechanisms in place to reduce them from happening again in the future. So uh, along those lines, let uh, let me. You said something a little bit earlier that I thought was worth exploring as well. The how are the conditions different? in this case, yeah. than another error. So a common strategy, as we well know, is, um, again, Mr. Ray, you're back on the stand. Uh, have you heard of the Mayfield case? Uh, I, I have. I've, uh, I've read uh, about the Brandon Mayfield um, and Madrid bombing case. And it would be fair to say that the FBI made an erroneous identification in that case? They did. And is it fair to say that the FBI has at least presumably good examiners? They're highly educated and considered highly trained examiners. I, I would agree with that. Uh, aren't they the best of the best in the United States? 
I wouldn't go that far. There are plenty of very qualified examiners at many agencies across the country. The FBI examiners are are uh, very well trained. And are you aware that the FBI made an erroneous identification to Brandon Mayfield in the famous Mayfield case? That is correct. And they also have a quality assurance program. Yes, they do. And they take proficiency tests. I, I believe so. I'm not so intimately. If they made this mistake, isn't it possible that your agency or you in this case could have made a mistake? Your errors are possible uh, when reaching conclusions in uh, fingerprint comparisons, which is why we have a quality assurance process in place to uh, to detect and address any errors that uh, that are detected through that process. And this is where I would probably jump in if if I were in your shoes. I would discuss the differences between the Mayfield case and this case. So I would say yes, but here's how these cases differ. And assuming well, so, that they do differ, you know, maybe in your case you made five identifications to the defendant. Uh, maybe they weren't through an APHIS system, and at least three of them were non-complex with an abundance of features. I mean, I, I, all of those things I think of what you one could bring up. What I don't really like, and I, I actually find a bit of a problem, and I've seen Brendan Mack seize upon this, is um, ask me about the Mayfield case, Eric. Um, are you aware of the um, Brandon Mayfield uh, fingerprint case? Sort of. Uh, ha- have you have you read any um, articles or or papers written about the case or seen any presentations about the case? Not really. <laughs> I right. I mean, it's yeah. frustrating. And, and then the examiner goes on to go, "I really know anything about it." And then, I mean, yes, I mean, they have now protected themselves from, from further questions here, although Brendan does a masterful job of going, hold on, one of the most important events in your field in the last 20 years, and you don't know anything about it? Now, some judges at this point sort of overrule him and go, you know what, not relevant, move on, and then right. he has to do that. In other cases, he's allowed to really run with that and makes a huge deal out of, wait, how do you not know something about this? That's a problem, and he will use that basically to expose that maybe you're not a very well-trained, well-educated examiner, and he will even bring up things like didn't the FBI make significant changes to their protocols and procedures after discovering this error? Didn't they learn many things from this error to prevent it from happening again? Yeah. And you're not aware of this? Did you do any of the same things that the FBI did after the error? Well, I don't know. I don't know anything about So I've seen him use that to actually pretty good effect, but it is really frustrating when the examiner kind of takes that approach of, well, I don't know anything about it, and I don't plan to know anything about it. It's the best thing that ever happened to us. It's okay to know about it. It is. It is. And like I said, I've seen him do real damage with not knowing it. But I've also seen the judge go, it's not relevant. This isn't the FBI. Move on. Right. It depends on the judge. Right. Right. From From a jury perspective, I don't know, you know. When asked multiple times about some knowing about something and you know not sure, I don't know. Like, like, well, have you read about it or not? Like, this isn't the thing that you wouldn't know. <laughs> you kind of you should be able to give an answer um, that you do know about it or you don't. 
And I, I would hope that the examiner would know about it. <laughs> well, yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, so um, coming back real quick to the differences between erroneous exclusions and erroneous identifications, uh, you know, addressing the erroneous exclusion that happened in your lab versus the ID that you're here presenting now, right? So just a few of the things that are big differences, the error rate, right? Multiple, all the studies have shown there's a clear order of magnitude if not greater difference between the false positive and false negative uh, error rates, even more between the um, false positive discovery rate and the false negative discovery rate. One thing I think that's, that's, uh, that's helpful that would be helpful for the jury to understand this difference um, is to kind of relate it to something they can understand. And the more I kind of say and just use the Waldo analogy, the more it, it kind of feels like it's, it's a good way to, convey that um you know beings that an erroneous id is basically you know someone points to wall to a person in a where's waldo map and says this is waldo and you look at it and you're like well no that's that's actually not waldo uh, that's, that's erroneous identification but erroneous exclusion is different that's looking at an entire page of waldo and saying waldo's not here and then someone comes along and says well look he's right there like oh I, like I, I missed it all right so it's a very different uh a different process in very different conclusions right that are using uh, the, then the errors happen for different reasons one is maybe he looks a little bit like waldo and that's why you made that you you picked the wrong person versus maybe he was just kind of hidden behind a a tree and 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 you you weren't you you weren't careful enough looking behind trees as you scanned through this entire huge area. Um, you know, showing that, you know, Hey, which, which one sounds like it's something that is more likely to happen Well, missing it would be much more likely to happen than just picking the wrong person and pointing to them as Waldo. So something to kind of convey, these are different processes. These are different conclusions that rely on different, different criteria and uh, the errors occur at different rates, and and there's just all these differences between them. Um, yeah, I, I I've always liked the analogy. You and Carrie both use the where's Waldo. I think in court I've used the puzzle piece analogy. You know, it's sort of like you know thinking that this puzzle piece goes yeah. in this one spot because it kind of sort of fits there when in fact it's in the wrong spot. Versus thinking that oh this puzzle piece doesn't even go to this puzzle at all it doesn't have a it doesn't there is no place to put this puzzle piece but again you're right finding analogies that they can understand that they're different kinds of errors and as you've already pointed out a couple of times we're here because of the one decision not the other one exactly and then bringing it back around that while this error is fairly common um, and we have lots of quality assurance measures in place to address it. Um, the error, the conclusion that I'm here testifying about is identification. And that is very different for all of these reasons. Uh, and we have in many cases, even stricter for many labs, even stricter quality assurance guidelines when dealing with an ID. Yeah. And I think just from my own experience, I tend not to say that phrase the and that's why i'm here to talk about that i let the prosecution bring that up i, I guess i don't bring it up myself just because it, i know it, it makes me feel like i'm beginning to try to engage a little bit like me versus them kind of thing and i i don't know uh, I, i've probably been 
bias now from working with defense attorneys. Sure. That I, I, you know, I sort of, I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying, I'm not necessarily trying to be antagonistic towards them. If prosecution wants to remind the jurors why I'm here, then I let them bring it up. Well, I mean, you don't have to phrase it like that, and you, you could even just say. Uh, but the conclusion I made in this case is an identification and yeah, not an exclusion, point. which is the which is what's the error that I had made previously. Yeah, you're right. No, there's a subtle way to do it without being like <laughs> right, like I, whose team I'm on, right? It's just yeah, talking no, about the right. conclusion. Yeah, you're right. So moving on a little bit, let's let's go towards those erroneous identifications. Right now. This is a little more rare to have in the examiner's background. Uh, Eric, I've actually never asked you. Have you ever made an erroneous ID that you know of? Not that I know of. Yeah, and and that's also sort of my answer too, that if I'm ever asked have I ever made an erroneous identification, I'll say not that I'm aware of in casework. No one has ever brought one to my attention, although I've never actually told this story. During my training, I did have one of my trainers go, take another look at this one. And I, I looked at it and thought, well, it's really thin. I was sort of pushing an arch. It was an arch. That's all I remember. It was an arch. And maybe I had seven or eight features, but in my lab, like eight was enough to call it. They were sort sure. of ex-FBI kind of approach. And the trainer just kept making a face like, I don't like it. He never said, that's not him. He just kind of said, mm, I don't like it. So I, to this day, I don't know if I if, – I would love to have seen that one again. But mm. – and this was towards the end of my training. So this is probably 10, 11 months in and I was you know, a, basically a year of training. But he just kept making a face like, don't call it. Don't do it. I don't want to have to extend your training was almost like the body <laughs> language <laughs> that he was saying. So to right. this day, I still don't know what the problem was, but my suspicion – just from reading body language was it might not have been him or mm. might not have been the finger. I was don't know. It, was it a ground truth kind of sample? No, no, no. At, at, at this time, even though we were credited, it was legacy. Sure. You, the trainees were working cases. So we worked the cases. Got it. But the trainer basically was doing supervised casework. You weren't signed yeah, yeah. off yet, yeah. but you were allowed to at least work through the entire case. And he was reading through my notes and brought that one back to me and said, mm -hmm. and just kind of tapped the desk and said, yeah, I better take another look at this. And then I did. And <laughs> I came back phrase. and was like, what's, what's the problem? And he's just making that face like it's the stinkiest cheese in the world. And uh, he, he wasn't going to have any of it. It's just, it's just, man, just such flashbacks to, to just that latent fingerprint examiner language, you know, eh, yeah. take a, take another look at this one or yeah, eh, I, I don't like this one. It's I, just, I, I, I wish though he had sat down with me because if I had made sure. an erroneous ID, he should have pointed it out to me. But the stigma at that time was if right. this is an erroneous ID, you might actually wash out of the training program because right. that's even not allowed Nine months into a training program, how dare right. you? I mean, you're jeopardizing your entire career. And but yeah, both I, those phrases though are so loaded for yes. other examiners. Uh, yes, you know, uh, taking a look, and I don't, uh, I don't like this. I don't like this. Um, yes. So loaded that it's it's really difficult to convey to a non-examiner just all of the loadedness that's in those terms. Right. 
But but was it a sufficiency issue or was there a exactly. feature that he thought was out of tolerance that it wasn't saying it wasn't this and he didn't even want to talk about it? And I sort of got the body language from him. I'd better not push this. I better just. So it, it, and 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 the the solution back then was call it no value. Of course, at that point was to go back and just call it no value, and and so yes. I believe that's what I did. Just taking cues from him, but I never learned from it, and that's my problem. Is I didn't get the opportunity to learn, and then it was the following years after when Mayfield and I started learning about close down matches and all these other things throughout my career, where I realized. While these waters are very dangerous, it's actually fairly easy for an examiner to find seven or eight matching features between different people. Uh, perhaps this is something that we should have really addressed early on in right. my in my uh, you know calibration and training. Is uh, uh was it from an APHIS search? Do you remember? I don't think it was. I believe actually it was named suspect and sure. two victim cards or three victim cards. And I think I was saying it was one of the family like victims uh, in the case. So uh, it wouldn't have had any actual impact or bearing. But again, to this day, I still don't know what the problem was. Uh, but it could have been just a a difference in opinion of sufficiency. Oh, uh, Yes, except I've seen I had seen his body language before on that, and right. this was different. There's something about this was different. Sure, got it. Interesting. Uh, no, interesting story. I don't think I've heard you tell that one before either. Uh, it doesn't come up very often. <laughs> and, and to and to be honest, I sort of wish I had made a known erroneous ID uh, because I not only want that story and to show other examiners it's okay. Because I've known, and here's where I have to share other people's stories, I have known many examiners, many. And I could name names, and some of the names you go, oh, I know that person. Oh, I know that person. Well, that person teaches. Oh, I know. I, I can think of a dozen people off the top of my head, like right now, names that people would know who all have made an erroneous ID. And they became better for it. They had no impact on their career. Their career continued to... Uh, climb and they continued to become more and more well known and uh, the idea that making a single erroneous identification your career is over and you'll never be able to testify again in the courtroom is nonsense we had it happen in our lab and i've known plenty of examiners who have had it happen and it's it's rare that they even get asked about it in the first place much less it be a career killer as has always been, I think, sold as a bill of goods to uh, examiners in the past. Well, it, it shouldn't. I mean, right? Of course. I mean, it obviously shouldn't. They they let pilots back in the cockpit after they crash, right? I, it, <laughs> it, 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 Even if it. they're like the only survivor, they can still be a pilot. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I like I. I mean, that's a obviously a hugely regulate, regulated field to be a a you know pilot. You know how how are we held? I mean, why would anyone expect us to be held to a higher such a high standard of nope? You can never ever make a mistake. One mistake, nope. You're you go you know, apply for Walmart. You're done. That's it. That's all we can do for you. It's yeah, I, I think I think back when we discussed the Mayfield case over a multi episode arc. I, I think this came up then too. One of us made the comment, you know, that those FBI examiners after Mayfield never, uh, 
you know, basically never did comparisons again, which is unfortunate because they probably would have been better examiners yeah. afterwards. Um, but I can also understand, at least in that case, that it might have also been a distraction. And, and, and I get that. But that's the Mayfield case because, frankly, as we know, the private examiner in that case, it didn't impact his work at all. In fact, he actually has it on his resume that, he yes, he was one of the examiners in the Mayfield case. He just gets it right out there. Yeah, I right. was one of those guys. And he still has plenty. He still had plenty of work for years after that. And yeah. I, 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 I know in our laboratory when we had an erroneous ID uh, back when I was a technical lead, there were a couple, a couple of things. I don't know if I've ever told this story either, but you know, I'm going to jump in. When the examiner that caught the error, when he found that error, he was sick to his stomach to bring it to the other to the first examiner and was really felt terrible finding it i mean you don't even that doesn't get talked about as the the verifier who discovers the erroneous id how guilty and terrible they feel but absolutely found the error brought it to the first examiner and fairly quickly realized not only did an erroneous ID happen, but it was also pretty clear how it happened. I won't get into the whole story, but it was two two major things that came together in a, in the perfect storm of the examiner was rushing to get out of the office to go on vacation, and they needed the report done for a yep. grand jury the following week. So they needed that done. The guy's wife had been calling him like, where are you? You're supposed to be packing. You're supposed to be home by now, and he's trying to get this case done. And then we had also just switched over to digital evidence, and the examiner had flipped between different exemplars and didn't realize he had flipped between exemplars. He wasn't very good with computer technology, and so he thinks he's looking at a previous exemplar, the one he's already made an ID to previously in the case, but he's actually switched exemplars. And there's just enough similarity because they're family members that he ends up IDing it to the wrong family member, basically. So it so was an ID, but just to a different person in the yeah, case. To a, a different person in the case, right? But he had actually like documented which matching features because there was some coincidental similarity. But he was going so fast that we think he overlooked the obvious differences. So that's how it happened. This examiner um, had you know had an FBI background. He was. He he was terrified that his career was over, and he just right. thought it's done. Everything's done at this point. But w- once once we sat down with him and went over everything, the first thing we did was we all took the afternoon off to hang out with him. We actually went and did like a little golfing trip, and we went to some went to some bars and hung out with him. Kind of made this. We knew that if he sat alone by himself, like he'd be one of those guys that would really internalize this and you know who knows it could have had some who who knows but we knew it was best not to leave him alone with his thoughts right and so we basically took the entire day off to go hang out with him and make him feel better we might have got him some lap dances at at, at a club (laughs) it's one way to work through it right uh it uh, we found that we wanted him to know that we were all in this together and that we come up with a solution as well, you know, to to work through this together. And ultimately, we did, and everything worked out fine. And then when the case came up to trial, it was a big homicide case. The defense attorney who was on that case, she was she's really well known in Minnesota, and she was 
the the DNA people called her the Dragon Lady. I mean, she was she was the attorney that we used in the. She was at the II. She was in that thing that Cedric and I did with the. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you remember her? Yeah. Yeah. Christine Funk, right? Yep. So she was she was the defense attorney on this case, and because it was all disclosed in the notes that he had made an erroneous identification uh, during discovery, he was so nervous, and she asked. What's what's this about? And he explained, and she went, oh, all right, so you made a mistake here, but it was caught during verification. Yeah. Okay. Came trial. She never brought it up. Never even came up. Wow. Not wow. at all. Never came up <laughs> of, once. Of all the obsession that, that he must have had in the yes. lead up to that, and, yes. and then it didn't even come up. Yep. And I've talked to, you know, Barry uh, – sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. I've t- I was going to say I talked to Barry Sanders. Like, no, I'm not Barry Sanders. <laughs> well, what does he have that's, to say about this? <laughs> that's the Detroiter in me. I've talked to Barry Sheck, and Barry Sheck has said the same thing to me. He's like, is it relevant to the case? Like, no, not really. Uh, then why would I waste the jury's time with it? I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother bringing it up. It, he actually said to me, I'm a better wow. defense attorney than that. And, and, oh, okay, and this was this, but this was the case it was in, right? Yes, exactly. No, much exactly. less some other case down the road, right? Right, right. Yes, uh, but this is what I hear from good defense attorneys: is I will bring it up if it's actually relevant or helpful. Otherwise, I'm not going to waste time with this thing. Do Do you think that they might bring it up if they've got also if they've got nothing else? I if. If they well, I think they're more likely to bring it up if there's an ID in the case that is marginal or problematic or whatever, or they're basically denying as their client. Then I think they would probably want to bring it up. They go, wait, wait, okay. you made an error on this other one. How do we know you didn't make an error on this one when they're truly disputing the ID? In Christine's case, she wasn't disputing the presence of her client. She's actually saying, yeah, okay, oh. fine, that's his print, but and and there was a, that was sort of Barry's approach too was. Is the print relevant in the case? Because, I mean, if it, if there's a reasonable explanation for it, it. Right. I only want to attack it and bring it up if I'm saying that my client never touched that surface or wasn't present. Got and it. You, you have to think like the attorney. Go, yeah, okay. Well, that makes sense. Right, right. So if if they're they're basically like, yeah, yeah, it's an ID, whatever. He was there. Uh, you know, not saying he wasn't. It was. He. I, I'm just saying he didn't. He didn't have the gun. You know, the prints on the the in the car. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's his car. Right. Of course, this prints on his car. Um, exactly. But so. I think again, like you said, there's a stigma that once you make one of these errors, you'll never be able to set foot in the courtroom again. And I'm telling our listeners. Right now, because I am telling you, some of our listeners likely are sitting there with an erroneous ID in their background, going, "Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god." The reality is, not only will you likely not be asked about it ever, and if you are, it won't have any impact on your case. So let's let's assume that we're in a different case where the the fingerprint, the accuracy of this ID is under question. Right. Sure. So the pros- the defense attorney does go down this road of asking you uh, about it. Kind of depends on a few different things. Like if they're just talking about the Mayfield ID, well, then you can talk about all the differences that uh, that are in the field now, all the changes that have been made in the field since you know the past, geez, sixteen, seventeen years now. Uh, there's yeah. been, yeah, um, which is tremendous. I mean, there's a huge number of changes that have occurred uh, since then. 
but if it's about like maybe a, a bad idea that's happened more recently, um, then you know we can still go back to some of the differences between the error case and this particular case, right? Was an yeah. APHIS search? How many IDs are there? Do you got twelve? Do you have every one of his fingers identified? Do you have cases like that, Glenn? Or you're like, yes, I got, yes. I got, I'm just missing number five. I got every other one. Come on, number five. Yeah, I call that a, a, a suspect bingo. <laughs> or the the amount of detail present, right? Are we talking, you got, you got 30, you got 40 points? Like how many, how many, you know, how many do you got? Uh, and then these are all important things to, you know, to discuss if, if they pertain to this case um, as, Factors that would greatly reduce the risk of error in this particular case. Right. Or or like my colleague, what things did you do after discovering this error to help reduce or prevent it from happening again? And we actually did two things to help that examiner. One – well, three things I'd say. I, I, I always say this. I think the, often the error itself – the humiliation that the examiner will heap upon themselves, that it's, you know, right, the self-flagellation that happens, the error itself is almost the lesson. Examiners are so humbled by making the mistake that I often think that that in itself is more than enough, although you could never write that in a quality assurance document. But right. Right, the psychology behind it. But yeah. the two things that we did to help that examiner – was one, uh, we got them some digital training and got them more comfortable with handling digital evidence. We had just switched over to digital evidence, and this examiner is, you know, Struggling 35 years yep. of experience from an old generation of just using the loop and the pointer. So, yeah, they struggled. He struggled a little bit to convert to digital evidence. So we got him digital training, and then we also got him some uh, distortion training, which I don't think was really necessary, but we wrote it in there anyway. So at least he could say, look, I did the following things after making that error. Plus, my cases were monitored for another six months afterwards to ensure that the error, you know, error, that this wasn't a trend and it didn't happen again. So, I mean, those are things I think are helpful to bring up uh, after the error, that sort of mitigation that comes up. Well, and, and um, you know, that, that might even be important for a unit, right? If, if an, a bad idea occurs in a, in a unit, when that remediation occurs uh, over specific issues that have been identified, uh, that you, know, you also look at everyone else in the unit too. It's like, well, does anyone else need this digital training? Or and that's exactly what happened. We all benefited from that error. Exactly. We all got. Go. We brought uh, Whitsky in for the digital training. We brought Alice in for the distortion training. So we actually all did benefit from it, including some neighboring agencies. And then you can talk about that. So even though this error didn't come from me. I've also been trained, you know, on these topics that were contributing factors to the error that occurred in our lab. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention, Eric, I don't know if you've heard about this, but I kind of heard about this back since the wartime days when I was teaching Pat and Casey's class. I heard about it way back then, and over the years I've seen examples of this as well. We know I at least I personally can think of examiners that began to make not just one but a series of of errors, particularly erroneous identifications where I was hearing about examiners making multiple in one day or multiple within a week. 
And in many of those cases where there were multiple just out of nowhere, they had either had some sort of medical procedure, medical issue, or had switched medications. There was something in the medical line where hmm. maybe they were uh, taking a medicine that affected their brain chemistry in a way that was unanticipated. Or in the case of one examiner I'm thinking of, they had actually had a clogged carotid artery oh. and there was potentially some issue. They ended up having to have bypass surgery about a week or two after this issue. They were starting to uh, pass out and have some issues. And then, uh, yeah, there's another one that had just gone through a surgery, was on this medication that they didn't think was affecting them, but all of a sudden they're making errors that they hadn't made before. So, I mean, in all three, there were these medical issues, and then I've heard this multiple times. Are you, any experience with this? No, no. I, I mean, the, the whole erroneous ID thing, I, I have much less experience on. I'm, I'm not aware of of that occurring in any place I've worked in, I, I, I don't have, you know, I haven't heard as many of these stories or, or seen it firsthand. Um, so, well, uh, I, but, I'll, I'll tell listeners that it's yeah. the antidepressants and the, um, basically the, uh, what are the serotonin uptake re in, re inhibitors, the, right. um, the ones for like bipolar disorder. So basically anytime you start messing with your brain chemistry, I mean, even if you're trying to fix some other clinically diagnosed issue, you should probably just be aware of this. And maybe a listener, mm. if even one listener hears that and goes, oh, wow, I was unaware of that. Uh, it, there are instances, again, anecdotally of examiners who have been impacted by these medications and how it affects their interpretation of, of, of images. And of course, it just makes sense, right? I mean, that's happening in your head, especially. Of course, it can affect those things. Well, it's a good thing that, uh, in general, crime labs are a place of, of solid mental health where you people don't <laughs> normally need to go on any kind of antidepressants. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, I I thought that would be worth bringing up too, just in case uh, a listener has maybe looking for a reason why they might have made a couple, you know, out of nowhere. That, that's that's a, a, an important point to to make is, you know, if you if you do need you know, to 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 start taking any kind of new medication that you know that, that that is kind of more in the front of your head as to paying attention to what what your eyes are doing, what your brain's doing as you're you're completing your. Uh, your examinations. Right. I mean, it takes a lot of brain focus, you know, to, to, to do this sort of thing, whether it's attention to detail and searching, you know, for, and not making the erroneous exclusion or trying to focus on what is correspondence, recognizing these differences for the, avoiding the erroneous identification. I mean, it's a lot of, you're consuming a lot of brain calories to stay very focused. And of course, anything that disrupts that, uh, cognitive process could oh, yeah. be a culprit behind this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that's interesting. All right, Glenn, uh, I think this is a you know good topic to, to cover. And, and if you know, anyone out there has any kind of stories about challenges they've had in testifying, uh, when questions came up about on this topic, or, uh, if you've in testimony, you know, kind of use a different technique that we didn't really mention here today uh, in in addressing anything like this, uh, you know, when it came up in court, you know, let us know and uh, send us an email. You, you know, along that line, Eric, actually, I, I forgot to mention that I actually have made two erroneous 
decisions on proficiency tests. And they did come up on cross-examination, or one of them at least came up on cross-examination. And now that I say two, I'm actually thinking it was three. So very briefly, my very first proficiency test, I made an erroneous exclusion, like the first one out of the gate. I, it was, I excluded and it was wrong. Well, so, I mean, I mean, not to say, you know, you know, that, you, that you've been doing this for a while, but way back then, did they even have exclusions on proficiency tests? Oh, uh, in fact, actually, all three of these are not identified. But I can tell you that my, my internal decision, maybe my, even my notes – even if I said not identified, I meant exclusion, meant exclusion. on that first one. No that's doubt. what I meant. But so, but even then, they did include ones that that didn't belong to any of the suspects. Were these all for, uh, CTS tests? Yeah, all three were CTS. But that was uh, my first proficiency test, my first actual one at the end of the year two thousand, right before I was going to basically go online. So there was that one, and then a few years later, one I decided not to call because the exemplars were garbage. And in fact, that's the one I got <laughs> asked about in the courtroom, and I used exactly those words. I said, I refused to identify it because the exemplars were garbage. I treated it like a case. Had this been an actual case, I would have asked for additional exemplars. So I said, not identified, inconclusive, need additional exemplars. But that was not in correspondence with the majority opinion, which was it, quote unquote, could have been identified. It, it was that actually had a really low rate. There were a number of other examiners that also had not identified that one but indicated in their notes which finger it was. It, it was hmm. a pretty clear and, – and what was very clear is when we got the, the reports, those that had the hard copies had a huge percentage that didn't identify it. Those that had the digital copy had a higher percentage that did identify it. Got it. So that it was – it was a printing issue with the right with the hard copies, right. and then there was the 2000 test that I just flat out missed. One. The 2010, yeah, yeah. Which, and but I never excluded it. I simply said unable to locate, um, you know, basically no focal groups. I think I need additional exemplars before I'd consider an exclusion on this. Inconclusive, need better knowns. But when ultimately it was shown to me where the true source was, I went. No, I, I didn't need better knowns. I just missed it. I was looking in the wrong spot. Right. So, and that was 30% of the people that took that test uh, basically did the same thing. That we know of. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, but so, I mean, for, for, uh, for my answer prof for proficiency tests, I mean, I've made potentially three answers that were inconsistent with, if you will, the consensus expected answers. So I've only been asked about that once, and I've been pretty vocal about – the errors and why they happen and then again just yeah. like you said but that's not why i'm here today well, although i don't say it that way i allow the prosecution to sort of bring that up well i mean hell you know we we I think we did a whole episode about that we've, we've discussed in probably a dozen different episodes that 2010 cts test uh yeah. and and kind of recounted the same story uh multiple times yeah. if you don't mind me asking um what about in in casework Oh, yeah. In casework, sure. Uh, uh, how uh, – let's see. How many? Probably two that I can think of off the top of my head. And this, these are both also erroneous exclusions? One was an inconclusive. Needed better knowns when I, I did and it turned out it was there. Okay. Yeah. And uh, – but you guys at the time were reporting exclusions, right? Yes. But not uh, normally verifying exclusions? 
No, when the one was caught, it was caught during verification. We were verifying exclusions. It was a blind that was caught. Oh, okay. If I can remember right, you just, did you guys ever get to a point where you verified all exclusions? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we okay. were at, at one point, they're verifying all IDs and all exclusions. I think inconclusives were the ones we weren't verifying, and I'm not even sure if they're doing those now. I think that's a you can verify them, but you're not required to. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, so that's one of the things I've I've just seen in, t- in talking with different agencies is, hey, we've never had any errors before. Like, you know, what do we do now? And and that's why I kind of want to talk about this a little bit, especially for those agencies where they're like, well, we've never had – we can always just in the past say, nope, never has happened to any of us. Uh, and one of the things that would cause that to change is starting right. to verify exclusions. Um, so if that's something new that you're starting, then, I mean, be ready. Granted, you're like, well, then I just won't ever verify exclusions. Well, that that's kind of worse because then you're just, the errors are still happening. You're just not catching them now. Uh, so for, for myself, like I said earlier in the show, well, I, I would, I guess I would know. So I can't just say not that I know of, but I, I haven't made an error on a proficiency test, uh, but I have made an erroneous exclusion in casework. It's one of those things where I knew it would happen eventually because that's what I say so often during teaching is if this happens to everybody eventually. It still sucked when it happened. And I don't know. It had a core and a delta, not an APHIS, just a, a low count loop comparing on the screen. And I just missed it. I, I don't know how. It, it just seems it seems so obvious. There's there's no like either any kind of either uh, any kind of in-depth analysis of why that occurred yeah. for me. But yeah. um, I hear you. One of mine was like that. It's just, well, yep, that's it. Huh. <laughs> what do you know? I think it's important to talk about it and be open with it because in the end, it should be understandable and acknowledgeable that this happens and uh, we should be proud of all the steps that we take to reduce the risk of it happening and catching it when it does happen. Right. Uh, and, and, and and ultimately, jurors don't expect us to be perfect. They simply don't expect that. And in fact, they will be skeptical if you imply that you are. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, any other final thoughts, Glenn? No, I, I enjoyed discussing that and sort of unloading some of that. And again, that you know, for our listeners, they need to hear that the way I look at it is the more years of experience you have, the more errors you just accumulate. It's not the it's if you are if you think that that you won't ever have one, well, likely you've already had some right. and it's it's going to happen if it hasn't happened yet. It, and it likely has happened. You just are unaware of it. Exactly. All the research is really clear on on that. Yeah. Someone's uh, making those errors. And it's not just Eric and me. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So like I said, if you guys have any stories that, that you want to share, uh, obviously we can totally anonymize all that. Uh, you write into us, uh, Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. Uh, Glenn, any classes you want to talk about? Yeah, uh, two two things. Uh, so I'm still doing some webinars through Evolve Forensics. So if you haven't caught any of those, I'd highly recommend checking those out. Uh, we have some starting up again in April and May. And then about every two months, I'll do a cycle of, of them. So I'm going to have a couple throughout the year. I'm doing them less frequently than Alice. 
uh, but I'm still going to continue doing them through the end of the year. And then I've started live classes again through Ron Smith and Associates. We've started going live. I've been vaccinated. I'm starting to travel a little bit more. And Eric, you're vaccinated too now. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I and I'm starting to see these courses take off. I already taught uh, a, um, a week. Uh, just the other week in Jersey, and, I'm, and my next course coming up is in Hillsboro, Oregon, which is just outside of Portland. So I'm going to Portland nice. uh, at the end of the month, and then possibly even Canada, so an international class. It's still possible on the book. So if you're interested in either one of those classes and going and taking a live class, they're starting back up, and it's starting to uh, starting to feel like normal again, and that's uh, that's the that's the joy of it. Absolutely. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com if you want to find out more about those courses. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to get back out there again. Like you said, I just got my my second dose in June. Um, I'll be at the Texas Division Conference in person back in the real world uh, the first week of June. Uh, I believe that's in the Dallas area. And then the Louisiana Division Conference the second week of June uh, in Baton Rouge. So, if you guys are already planning on going to those, I will see you there, and we'll be so excited to get back. Uh, I can't wait to see everybody uh, out out there at the conferences, and then at the big one in Nashville, obviously in in August. With that, first business to take care of is the anagram. Glenn, you already got it, but antiquary clauses comes around to quality assurance, which again relates back to everything else from this episode. Uh, let's see, uh, patreon.com slash podcast if you want to uh, help us out and join the list of people contributing to us there. Uh, Podcast is our website where you can link from there to all the socials. Also uh, sign up for the FIGS newsletter and see our merch store, which I've, as soon as I have like, you know, five minutes of, of awake time, we'll, uh, you know, get some new stuff posted on there. Um, gotta get some new stuff posted so that we can if people can get it and ordered in time for all these new conferences coming out this summer uh, the opinions expressed on the show belong to the speaker and not uh, necessarily anyone that they work for I think that's everything so I'll talk to you guys next time bye everybody have a good week stay safe stay healthy stay sane hope to see you all soon bye now